Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. There are good times to cross the English Channel, and there are bad times. Then there are terrible times. The start of January 1153 is a terrible time. Fierce winter gales, huge waves, and near freezing temperatures mean that sailors are loath to leave port. Late medieval ships are more robust than we might think, but they're designed for sailing in sight of land. Crossing the Channel is a short trip, but it means losing sight of anything but water and seaweed for several hours. In good weather, that's okay if you know roughly where you're heading, but in a winter storm, you're taking your life in your hands. Nineteen-year-old Henry Plantagenet doesn't care about any of that. He's the most powerful man in France, probably even above the king. He's in Normandy. He needs to get to England fast, and he's not prepared to wait around until the sky's clear or someone works out how to build the Eurostar. Because there's a glittering prize dangling on the other side of the Channel, the English crown. Henry's supporters in England are under siege, and every second he delays brings them a step closer to defeat, which could put the throne out of reach forever. So from Christmas onwards, Henry's staring at the clouds and the sea each day, asking the crews of his 36 ships, "Can we make it?" Eventually, after two weeks, Henry's badgering wears them down. He's an incredibly forceful personality, and his willingness to put himself in danger is infectious. So, although the weather is still atrocious, Henry's sailors agree to risk it. They set out into a choppy grey expanse of salt water. Hoping and praying that God delivers them safely. This isn't quite a suicide mission, but it's not far off. And if Henry gets to England in one piece, things won't get any easier. He's going there to try and kick his cousin, the 56-year-old King Stephen, off the throne, and convince the English barons and bishops to accept him as rightful king. That will mean finding a way to end a civil war that has been raging in England for 18 years, almost as long as Henry has been alive. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is history, a dynasty to die for. Episode three: Rough Crossings. Now, last time we heard about the union between Eleanor of Aquitaine and Henry Plantagenet, a marriage that made them the most powerful couple in the whole of France. Now, instead of a honeymoon, Henry's making his next move, choosing to risk death and defeat by invading England. Why does this bolshie teenager think he has any right to do this? And is an army of mercenaries so small it fits onto three dozen ships? Really enough to pull off a repeat of the Norman conquest of 1066. That's what we're going to find out in this episode. But first, we need to go back to another crossing of the Channel, which took place years before Henry was born—a crossing that ended in tragedy, but which laid the path for Henry's invasion.
just over 32 years before our young Chancer set out into his winter storm, in November 1120, another fleet of ships left Normandy, heading for England. This time the weather was calm, but the same can't be said for some of the passengers and crew. In fact, a lot of them were tanked up, having a party in port before they left, laughing, singing, and drunkenly turning away priests who came to bless their vessel for its journey. In the Middle Ages, that's generally a very bad idea. This fleet was led by another Henry, Henry Plantagenet's grandfather, King Henry I of England. Henry I had been in Normandy, negotiating a peace settlement with his counterpart, the King of France. The negotiations had gone well, very well in fact. The French king had recognised Henry's 17-year-old son, William, as Norman Duke, a.k.a. boss man of the whole of Normandy. This was a major concession, so Henry was delighted. And William was positively buzzing. His ship, known as the White Ship, became the main party boat. According to one source, it was drunken mayhem. No sooner was the wine delivered to them than they had a great drinking bout and, pledging their comrades in full cups, indulged too much and became intoxicated. Things got so out of hand that as the ship prepared to sail, some of the more sober nobles decided not to risk it. They left the vessel upon observing that it was overcrowded with riotous and headstrong youths. Henry left for England with a sober captain and a strong crew at the oars, but William's ship lingered in port. They didn't want the party to end. Finally, as the moon rose and midnight approached, his crew decided they really ought to get going. They weighed anchor and set off. But the white ship never made it out of the harbour. The place they were setting sail from was called Barfleur, and in the mouth of Barfleur Harbour is a big, jagged rock known as the Kielbeuf. Under the drunken captain's command, the white ship slammed straight into the Kielbeuf, punching a hole in her hull. Water poured in. The crew and passengers scrambled for lifeboats. But like a medieval Titanic, there were too many people and not enough berths. Add to that the freezing winter water, the blackness of the night, and the inebriation of everyone on board, it's not surprising what happened next. They all went under. Or almost all. A Norman butcher called Berold was wearing oilskins, which stopped him freezing to death. The next day, Berold told of a pitiful scene. Terrified young aristocrats screaming for their lives as they thrashed in the icy sea. All of them drowned, including William, Henry I's son and heir. It was a terrible human tragedy, but it was a political catastrophe, because William wasn't just Henry's son, he was his only legitimate son, due to inherit the English crown. That meant that Henry's succession plans were in deep trouble. Although he had more than 20 bastard children with various mistresses, Henry only had one other child with his wife. That was a daughter, Matilda. She'd been married off young to the Emperor of Germany. In the aftermath of the White Ship disaster, Henry had to make a difficult decision. Since he never produced any more legitimate children and wouldn't name a bastard as his heir, 
he decreed that Empress Matilda, who was widowed in 1125, should succeed him. He arranged for her to marry a certain French count called Geoffrey Plantagenet, that's our Henry Plantagenet's father, if you remember, and he made all his barons swear that they would uphold his wish for Matilda to become queen when the time came. They swore they would, but then Henry died in 1135, supposedly after gorging himself on lampreys, a repugnantly ugly but apparently totally delicious eel-like fish. His sneaky barons promptly pulled a U-turn and backed the rival claim of one of Henry's nephews, Stephen. Now, Stephen was a cautious, diligent sort of guy. He was one of those killjoys who'd sensibly refused to get on board the white ship party boat in 1120. He wasn't a very inspiring leader, but he had a bit of royal blood, and he was a man. For the barons, that tipped the balance. Now, naturally, Matilda was outraged and refused to accept being sidelined. So the result of Stephen's coup was to drop England and Normandy into a vicious civil war between his supporters and Matilda's. It's known today as the Anarchy, and it raged back and forth for a generation. One chronicler wrote that it felt like Christ and his angels were asleep. For a while, Matilda led the war from England, but she never struck a killer blow against Stephen. She was a woman in an age where ruling queens were considered very dodgy, and she could never quite charm enough of the barons into backing her. So Matilda retreated to Normandy, leaving her supporters to hold out until her eldest son was old enough to take up her claim. And that is how we got to where we began this episode, with our young Henry Plantagenet, son of the Empress Matilda, and now the most upwardly mobile man in Western Europe. He's setting sail across the stormy channel to go and take what he believes was his mother's right and is now his, the English crown. The only problem is Stephen still thinks it's his. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. January the 6th, 1153, is Epiphany the day Christians celebrate the coming of the three kings to see baby Jesus. And that's the day Henry Plantagenet, a would-be king, arrives in England, having survived the crossing. But Henry doesn't come bearing gifts. He comes with a small army of 140 knights, about 3,000 mercenary foot soldiers, and a plan. 
Power in the 12th century is as much about character and momentum as it is about battlefield superiority. Henry knows this, and he's aiming to show that he has more about him than the ageing Stephen, and convince the English barons and bishops that supporting him would be an investment in the future. In other words, this is as much about mind games as it is about war games. Henry knows that for this to work, he doesn't need to storm every castle and city in England. He just needs one or two symbolic tactical victories, and soon people will believe that Stephen is done for and Henry is the logical choice to back as king if they want to live in peace. Henry already comes with a big reputation. Those who've seen him fight in France say he pushes his armies so hard that horses often fall dead under their riders. Plus, he's the ruling Duke of Normandy, where a lot of English barons own land they'd like to protect. So all he needs to do is demonstrate that he's not a complete dud. Which he does, in short order, by coming to the rescue of some of his most die-hard supporters. Henry's backers in England, long-time loyalists to his mother before him, have one of their main power bases in a castle at Wallingford, near Oxford. Stephen has had Wallingford under siege for so long, they're about to starve to death. Henry has to save them. Most leaders would go straight to Wallingford and try to drive off Stephen's troops, not Henry. Despite thrashing rain and awful roads of churned, wet winter mud, he races instead to Malmesbury, about 60 miles away, where one of Stephen's finest castles stands. His men smash up the town and then start battering at the castle walls, terrifying everyone inside. There's panic. Stephen is forced to pull away men from his siege at Wallingford to try and save Malmesbury. So Henry gets two for the price of one. His castle at Wallingford is relieved, and when Stephen arrives at Malmesbury, his men wet, demoralised and very much not up for the fight, he dithers and doesn't attack Henry's troops. There's a face-off in the rain across the River Avon, the two armies staring each other down. Then, Stephen folds. Questions about the king's leadership start flying around, especially among the barons. One scribe notes that when Stephen asks for their help, they're suddenly a bit busy and send envoys secretly to make their peace with Henry. This is a crisis moment for Stephen, and his reaction to Henry's daring assault is the moment of truth. But in a way, his reaction is inevitable. He's 56, an old man by medieval standards. He's been fighting a war for nearly 20 years. He's worn out. And this 19-year-old has made an impossible crossing of a stormy channel and gone straight for his jugular. Stephen doesn't fancy the fight, so he offers Henry a truce. And from that point on, it's clear where the momentum lies. As Henry predicted, English barons realise which way the wind is blowing. They calculate that if they get on the Plantagenet bandwagon, they'll be in a good place if and when Henry becomes king. So they start defecting en masse, sending word to Henry that they will hold their castles in his name, not Stephen's. So Henry stays in England, cheerily marching a growing army around as if he already owns the place, 
visiting barons and taking their pledges of loyalty. By the summer, Stephen is at his wit's end. He has one last go at raising an army from those few barons who still support him. But they turn him down. One account from the time notes that Those of deeper judgment shrank from a conflict that meant the desolation of the kingdom. By midsummer, it starts to dawn on Stephen that the game is up. His bishops, traditionally peacemakers in a medieval kingdom, start to whisper to him that it might be time to come to some arrangement with this wild invader. If he accepts the inevitable now, he can still negotiate terms. It's astonishing that from a place of relative strength, it's taken just four months for Stephen's entire position to crumble. But that's character and the force of personality in the medieval world. Things are only about to get worse for Stephen and better for the ruthless Plantagenets. Next time, we'll hear how Henry wielded his new power over Stephen and the rest of England. And, spoiler, it's not going to be pretty. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit